Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast, where we help you lead your ministry with confidence by providing real-life insights from a real lawyer who works with churches every day. That's me, Erika Cole, known as the church attorney. We also have amazing guests on the show, and today is super exciting as we are discussing the rise and fall of Mars Hill with the creator and host of that podcast, Mike Cosper. Mike is the founder of Harbor Media and the author of several books on faith and culture, including Faith Among the Faithless, Learning from Esther, How to Live in a World Gone Mad. He served for 16 years as one of the executive pastors at Sojourn Church watching it grow from 12 people in an apartment to 4,000 people in four locations across the city of Louisville. He recently joined the staff at Christianity Today to further develop their podcast network. And I was just joking with him. Obviously, that's been hugely successful. Uh, And today, Mike and I will get to discuss how the change of Mars Hill's church governance was a seminal point in the Mars Hill story. So welcome to the Church Law Podcast, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm honored to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, So we both happen to have podcasts on Christian Today's podcast network, uh, which is very cool. And suffice it to say that your podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, has been hugely popular. As a matter of fact, I believe it was trending as maybe a top three of all podcasts on Apple. Is that right? Yeah, I think we hit three or four. I can't remember. Maybe maybe it was four, but... We'll, we'll say three for today. That's, that feels better. Yeah. Well, making top five is is amazing. So kudos <laughs> to you. Thank you. Yeah, it was wild for sure. So of course, I was listening along with obviously millions of others. Um, so we largely know the story, but there is a unique angle that I found particularly important to amplify from a legal standpoint. But just for those who may not have gotten a chance to listen to the all 12 episodes and and the bonuses. Can you maybe give us a quick summary of what you're endeavoring to share in the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Yeah, absolutely. So the church was founded in Seattle in 1996 um, by Mark Driscoll. Mark was uh, about 26 years old at the time. He'd never really never really been a pastor. He'd been kind of on staff at a church, but um, in in more of a support role in, in a ministry. Um, and didn't grow up in a real, like a, in a Christian home, Christian environment, became a convert in college, had this vision, you know, I'm going to plant a church. So plants in 96 connects with a lot of sort of young cultural creatives in the city. And, you know, the next thing you know, 
it was a church that that they didn't have money, they didn't have influence, but they had all of these sort of cultural influencers in the community. And that became just catalytic to attracting people. And, you know, by by 2011, you know, they were in, uh, gosh, I believe it was 12 locations in, I haven't looked at it in a, in a few weeks, but like 12 locations in five states. And then kind of peaking at the end of 2013. And then October of 2014, he resigned and the church permanently closed its doors December 31st, 2014. So we wanted to tell the podcast to understand both, you know, what worked, why, why did the church grow? What was it attractive? Uh, what was attractive about the church? And also, you know, what led to the demise and like, how does, how does a church of 15,000 people, you know, really in a period of about a year collapse um, that dramatically? And, and then particularly this idea that you would have an institution that big where one guy leaves and they just decide, okay, we're closing the doors. We're done. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, as an attorney who has over 20 years experience of representing churches and ministries, um, I believe that the decline and ultimate demise of Mars Hill offers a cautionary tale (laughs) with respect to governance and the alteration of the decision-making structure. Um, So as you mentioned, the church was founded in Seattle in 1996 as a home Bible study and then grew to more than 12,000 people at, I think, 15 locations and um, this weekly attendance of many, many thousands. I think you mentioned like 15,000. So what I'm hoping we can key in on today is the decision initiated by Driscoll to revise the church bylaws, Mm -hmm. taking its elder-led model of governance and further consolidating it into a smaller group of elders and pastoral leaders that included Mark himself. So this issue of redefining church governance to limit who gets to make decisions, I thought was a defining moment. And um, and I think the repercussions that Mars Hill experienced reflected some of the concerns and considerations maybe that we'd want to raise. Um, yeah. So my question to you is, is, as a former pastor, what are your thoughts about the dangers of these kinds of quiet governance changes? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, it's the challenge of non-denominationalism too, right? Like, or or even certain denominations like you know, Southern Baptists vary pretty dramatically church to church on polity like this. Most people in the pews probably don't even have an opinion about how that kind of stuff gets done because um, they might have joined this church and it's a PCA church in, you know, Memphis. And then they they move to Nashville and they join a non-denominational Christian church. And then they move to Indianapolis and they're at an Anglican church because they're often there for the people and the community, the teaching and that sort of thing. And obviously, those three examples are all radically, radically different. So, you know, what's interesting is our church in many ways paralleled the Mars Hill story. It's one of the reasons I was so attracted to tell it. And this was a struggle for us, too, because there's tensions. And there's an element to which I understand what, what Mars Hill's leaders were trying to figure out is, you know, we established, you established the church on this idea. There's going to be a plurality of elders. and We're going to take, you know, leadership seriously and across the spectrum here. But then the church gets to two, three, four thousand people and multiple locations, and your elders are counseling people and dealing with falling apart marriages and teaching classes and all of this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, do you want them in the room for 
every performance review or to, you know approve every raise or you know the we need to increase the utilities budget by six percent this year whatever it is so I think the logic of saying let's narrow those processes down to a smaller group of people made a lot of sense the Mars story though is interesting because the first one was I believe in 2003 um, where in 03 they they basically said we're going to the 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 body of elders is going to commission a smaller group of elders and they're responsible for budgets raises that that kind of thing um, then they did another evolution in 2007 the 03 evolution didn't get much you know pushback or anything 07 did that was a huge eruption for their leadership leading to two elders getting pushed out fired one of them being shunned really truly ruining the guy's life for many years um, and then, then there was a third polity shift in 2011 in which the governance of the church left the church to an external board. And each one of those, you can look at it in hindsight and see how each one of those changes ultimately strengthened Driscoll's control of that environment and made it more and more difficult for people to, to kind of push against him. Um, the 07 change was particularly interesting and problematic because sure there's six guys around him that are theoretically holding him accountable or whatever but also guess who their boss was they all worked for the church they all reported to him you know um and so then with the movement to the external board it was like well that's that it was meant to sort of pull you know hold that to account but a lot of these external you know these external board members are looking at the church and they're going well the church is growing great things are going well and we like mark we get along great with mark so when they would hear concerns, there was the disconnect was just enormous. And um, so, yeah, the the inability of the local elders, the local community to really have any sort of voice or insight or even to be able to just top, tap the brakes on initiatives, leadership initiatives inside the church was contributed to a whole lot of what brought it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that's what it felt like to me as a listener and very much as a, a person in, in the weeds <laughs> regularly with these kinds of changes that churches, you know, may consider. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that in the church arena, just like any other area, there are changes that happen over time, right? I am a generation Xer. So I remember I, I grew up in a church that was very um, traditional. And, you know, a steeple church with the denomination in its name, you know, all those kinds of things. So we have, over my time, experienced shifts from using the word church or Bible or faith or whatever in the name of the church. Like, I just remember filing these articles of amendment to change church names, you know, for, I mean, it just felt like I was doing hundreds of them. So that was a big shift. And then, of course, churches move from the more traditional steeple-like buildings to the more warehouse-type thing, et cetera. Right, exactly. (laughs) So that shift. And then we have a shift of bylaws. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm called upon to review and, and change bylaws to change the governing structure. And so if you consider those examples of, like, you know, how we've gone to these more groovy names, right, for churches. I mean, is that any legal harm? Probably not. 
how we've shifted from, you know, your steeple and glass stained window buildings to, you know, the warehouses, probably not. But this shift of governance, I think, is a bit different. So especially when you see churches consolidate power and maybe that pastoral leader, as as you said in, in the intro, becomes so seminal that when he's not there, the doors close in like, what, 60 days or something like Mm -hmm. that. So, you know, from your experience and your deep dive and what happened in Mars Hill, um, and as someone who's called to lead people, what are your thoughts about shifts to consolidate power and to Mm -hmm. one maybe strong personality? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's fascinating to think about you know, because everything you just described like parallels some of the stories we tell even in the show, but just that you seeing it as a lawyer because you're like you're processing like dotting the I's and, you know, crossing the T's. But what interests me, you know, is I feel like there's research to be done on kind of the, the myth of the startup in the last 30 years, 40 years. I mean, the degree to which I remember when the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs came out. Everyone I knew in ministry was reading it. And so many of my friends who were like, we were all like second cheerleaders, right? Like we weren't the lead guys. We would all read this thing and go, dude, I work for this guy, you know? And particularly there was language often, like Isaacson uses this term in the book where he he talks about the reality distortion field that followed Steve Jobs. And he he was so compelling and he was so convicted. I mean, he was just so convicted something was gonna happen that he'd walk in and he'd tell you something that was crazy. And you'd go, everything in your rational mind is going, this isn't attainable. You know, the only way we're going to do this is if we burn the candle at both ends and overextend our resources and we're going to burn through staff and money. Like, there's no way we can pull this off. And then somehow or other it happens, you know, and it's like, he walks into the room one day and he says, I want a phone with no buttons, you know, and that's, everybody's like, you're crazy. And that's the iPhone, you know, we all have phones with no buttons now. Anyway. I think there's something to that. I think there's something where because churches, because there is this gravity towards churches getting bigger and bigger, and that being almost moralized as like, if you're not big, are you being effective? You know, is something wrong? Like, what is wrong if you're not getting bigger? And it, that that sort of marketplace mindset of you're either growing or you're dying is is kind of through and through and through. And so that places such a pressure on the entrepreneurial gift of the leader that churches are, I think, you know, to look at it the way you're describing it in terms of bylaws and everything, churches are constantly trying to adapt so they can figure out how do we adapt so that this entrepreneurial guy has all the leverage and freedom and speed to do what he wants to do. Because that was the thing that, that's the thing that came up in these conversations was it was always like, if we don't change the bylaws, we have to go through all this process with all these different people and it just slows us down and we're going to get off mission, you know, because slowing down, uh, it was an unspoken judgment, but the judgment was that slowing down was inherently a sign that something had gone wrong. Hmm. That's very interesting. You know, the political science major in me would want to, you know, dive into that whole consideration. Like our whole polity is created you know, with, for checks and balances, right? Mm-hmm. And we, I think, as a as a nation, have 
always lauded that as a positive thing. And, and I have often said in the context of church, it is a bit more complicated mm-hmm. because the law says the church needs to be governed by this governing body, right? There needs to be some clear system of governance and governance means to pilot or to steer, right? You know, that's where that comes from. On the other hand, as people of faith, the Bible, I believe, says that God gives pastors after his own heart, right? So the yeah. pastors, you know, God doesn't appoint board of directors, you know, he, 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 he calls pastors. And so there is this inherent, I think, struggle within church between following the governance system that the law demands and also trying to give some vision allowing authority mm-hmm. to the pastor. Do you see this? Yeah. Another aspect of this that I think relates to what you're saying that was really interesting as we as we did the reporting on the podcast is you would you could talk to people from different denominations and you know if they were really convicted and about belonging where they belonged, right? You'd say, okay, so what do you think the solution is to an unhealthy culture where a leader like this can run amok? And you talk to a Baptist and he would say, well, the cure is congregationalism. The congregation needs to have the ownership of this. And you talk to a Presbyterian and they'd say, well, the answer is Presbyterianism. You know, you need the, you know, the elder and the session and the uh, ordination process and all of this. You talk to an Anglican and the Anglican would say, you know, well, it's, you know, it's because the person's been, you know, elevated over the sacraments. You need, you know, good liturgy and, you know, and it's like everybody's answer is like, well, my tradition has a response to this. And there's a lot of truth to it too. I mean, when they describe the vision of what they're about, they're not necessarily wrong. And at the same time, because I'm in this position where I'm reporting this story and doing this research, I have in the back of my head, like, well, I can name you five Baptists who are, you know, and on down the line. And so about, you know, about midway through working on this project, I remembered, I once heard Dallas Willard speak about, um, I can't remember what the talk was about, but there was this Q&A and politics came up and he said, you know, he goes, here's the thing. He said, pretty much any political system, any political philosophy in, in Western history, pretty much any one of them would probably lead to utopia so long as everybody in society obeyed the, ter- the Ten Commandments, you know? And mm. there's the problem. And I think church polity is kind of the same way. It's like any system, if the people involved inside the system don't have enough character, I mean, obviously we're not all going to perfectly embody character. We're not going to be sinless in it. But if we don't have the character whereby our sins can be restrained, we can be held accountable, you know, and whatnot, there's almost a degree to which no polity mattered. I mean, there were, you know, there, there, there are a number of examples of stories where, like, like one of the decisions that we, we worked on and we tried to report and we never got, we didn't get enough sort of on the record clarified documentation to understand how it happened is the result source story inside Mars Hill, mm-hmm. which was... Church paid $250,000 to hire a, an agency to ensure that Mark's book, Real Marriage, made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. And you knock on every door of the people who were in charge. And it's like, well, I didn't do it. You know, well, I didn't do it. Well, I didn't do it. And you know, what seems evident is that at the end of the day, those people had the kind of legal responsibility where if they didn't do it, 
they should have known who did because, right, like they're legally accountable. They're on, they're the governing board. Mm -hmm. And an organization with a $20 million budget cuts a check for $250,000. Like that's nothing to sneeze at, mm -hmm. you know, um, to have accountability for. And so what you had then, I, I say all that to say, something's going on inside that system where even the structure that was in place was not being honored. And so it's like even... As, as flimsy as it was, because it was designed to cater to Mark as an entrepreneur and as somebody who could make decisions and move quickly, the system wasn't being honored. And so it's like it didn't even matter what was there. He could have had the most elaborate system in the world there to hold him accountable. But if he's not going to submit to it, and if the people around him are not going to either apply the pressure to or make the scene or whatever is necessary to stand up to it, you know, this stuff just runs them up. No, that's that's really good, Mike. It it makes me think about the the popular saying that good fences make good neighbors. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is a story about boundaries as well as much as anything else. So we can have these rules, these regulations, these policies, but if they're not followed, then they don't add much value. And mm -hmm. I always say the worst uh the only thing worse than not having bylaws or not having a policy is having something you don't follow mm -hmm. um, from a legal standpoint. And so yeah, when you raise the whole issue and uh, about Mark's book and you know the $250,000 check that was cut so that uh, lots of books could be bought and it could make it to the you know bestsellers list. It absolutely came to me from a legal standpoint of who reviewed the contracts and who okayed this. And may I also say, to what degree do the people in the pews who are donating the money that ultimately pays for this, what rights do they have to know about what's going on in the back? How, uh, as they say, the sausage is being made. What, do you, what are your thoughts about the people in the pews in these kinds of instances? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely along with the polity shrinking the amount of, um, or I should say like concentrating the power into a smaller and smaller group of people. The other thing that it did was, and I don't know if it was sort of written into the polity or if it just became part of the sort of governing philosophy was the transparency just vanished, you know, day by day by day. And so you could find, you know, I have examples of like annual reports from 2007, 2008, 2009, I have examples of like they had a, a staff salary matrix in 2008 that was this very well put together, probably by the church law and tax folks. In fact, I know it was. That was one of their significant resources. Was um, they used that along with a couple of other a couple of other resources and then some stuff from the city of Seattle, and they put together this very thoughtful, careful, you know, staff salary matrix. And if you look at it and you look at what Mark was getting paid in 07, Mark was underpaid until 2008 um, by all, every national standard. And it wasn't until some, some other sort of executive, some leaders with some executive experience came in and became, el became elders and were looking at the finances. And they were like, guys, we got to fix this. Like Mark has been, he's flying all over the country speaking everywhere because he's not making enough money. Now, by the end, he was making $650,000 a year. So he was... Kind I guess he up. made it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you look at it and it's this very thoughtful thing. And it was it was transparent. The whole staff saw it. Like the whole, anybody could see this matrix. And so you just kind of generally knew, here's why we pay people what we pay. Here's the spectrum. Here's how it fits Seattle. Here's how it fits churches nationally. 
Then by the end, you know, all those decisions, all the salary decisions, the executive team salary was set by an external board. So nobody knew any of that. And then the executive team, which was three guys, set the salaries for everybody else in the church. And obviously, if your lead pastor is, is making 650K, the disparity between him and everybody else in the organization is just mind-boggling. So that's that's a huge, huge consideration. And you mentioned church lawn tax, which I have the honor of of writing for. And as a matter of fact, I'm working on an article that's going to be coming out soon about this whole issue of church governance. And I also touch on the the matter of the different kinds of governance structures, whether elder-led or congregational-led or the denominational type. But one of the things that we discuss is the shrinking involvement of the congregation and ultimately the, the shrinking transparency. And I think that if I am understanding um, what you have shared in the podcast, and I can certainly speak for myself, the goal here is to highlight these issues so that other churches can take from these cautionary tales, right? So that we can be better as people who serve churches and we can be better to the kingdom of God, ultimately to be a good reflection of God's bride, the church. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, someone was asking me the other day about some of this polity stuff and some things they're going through with their church. And I think if I had to summarize my conclusion at this point, it's like, the best system in the world can't fix a broken leader. A leader who's, and by that I mean like broken in the sense that a leader who's who's not broken, a leader who's not willing to submit to other elders and leaders around him, who's not willing to, who's not willing to lose an argument ever. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't create a system to make up for somebody's lack of character and lack of qualification um, if you really want to get into the biblical language. So yeah, I think this is such important stuff and, and I think, you know, accompanying it, you know, along with doing exactly the things that you do, I think we also just have to keep waving this flag and say, don't think that because you get the paperwork right, you're going to you're gonna fix somebody who's going to, at every chance, look for the ways, how do I get around it and get what I want and win the argument, you know, because, yeah, there's a lot of, of bodies because of that. Well, I, I think that's particularly well said. And, and I also want to just add to that to say, not only can a system not operate when you have an obstructive leader, someone's, the body has to be willing to step in and address those things. And I find from my vantage point, often, you know, these things go amok because challenging a leader in that situation can go badly for an individual, right? Absolutely. And no one Absolutely. wants to actually be, uh, what does he say, regulate the body under the bus or something like right. that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think would be interesting to hear someone in your position think about is sort of the flip side of the argument or the flip side of the question being, how do you set up a structure in a church? Because you can't always guarantee, right, that a leader is going to stay healthy forever. You bring someone in, you see the character and all of that. Things happen, people make bad decisions, their lives fall apart. And so how do you create a process where you have this ability for like gracious exits, right? As things are going wrong and people are leaving, how do we care for those people? And then how does that process, you know, create, not that you want to create a system that's like constantly building a case against somebody, but 
I think that's one of the things that's missing, right? Like Mars Hill had so many people out the door for so long. And it was like, there was this legacy to where, you know, when the new board came in in 2011 or 2000, yeah, 2012 is when they came in this, this external board, they come in and then 2013, somebody comes and brings charges against Mark. And they were all just like, well, we haven't heard any of this. Like, what, you know, what is all? And so none of that history, none of the, you know, I think if they'd had any of the context of what had happened to the people that came before, it would, it would be changing. So anyway, these are. That's a great question. So maybe there's a part, maybe yeah. there's a part two in the making. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Figure it out and come talk to me. Let's figure it out. <laughs> Well, Mike, I really appreciate this conversation. I think it's going to be so helpful to our listeners. And I want folks to know that today's episode is sponsored by Take the Next Call, a six-week live course where I help burnout pastors take the next step toward a life of more joy and contentment so that they can truly serve the Lord with gladness. And feel free to share your comments and questions with me. I can be reached at contact at takethenextcall.com. Um, I will answer every question and maybe one of them will be answered on an upcoming episode. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax and is a part of the Christianity Today podcast network. Subscribe to Church Law Podcasts to get each new episode and join us on this journey. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights. Thank you.